This is Undisciplined. I'm at Matthew LaPlante. You've probably heard the old adage that it's impossible to be sure of anything besides death and taxes. Ben Franklin often gets the credit for that turn of phrase, although it's been around for at least 70 years before he scribbled it into a letter to Jean-Baptiste Leroy in the year 1789. By that time, though, some of Franklin's contemporaries had already come to believe that there might be something even more inevitable. Black holes, which were first conceptualized six years before Franklin's famous letter. They were conceptualized by the philosopher John Mitchell. Nearly 200 more years passed before somebody would offer a suggestion that black holes, well, they might not be so inevitable. And that someone was Stephen Hawking, who in 1973 suggested that if given enough time, black holes would begin to evaporate. But many physicists have since come to believe that black holes have an extremal limit, a saturation point, where they simply can't shrink any further, given all the electricity that they've sucked up over trillions and trillions of years. At that point, they're stuck at that size. So, so is that it? Are extremal black holes inevitable? Well, in the past few years, physicists have started to wonder whether maybe, just maybe, extremal black holes could decay. And in a new paper, the physicists Garrett Goon and Ricardo Panko have proposed a universal formula relating energy and entropy that might help solve this question. And they're joining us today to talk about it. Garrett Goon is a postdoctoral researcher at Carnegie Mellon University's High Energy Theory Group, where he has most recently landed after academic turns at Utrecht, Amsterdam, Penn, and two separate stints at Cambridge. Garrett, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And Ricardo Penko is an assistant professor of high-energy physics theory, also at Carnegie Mellon University. His CV is also a who's who of very impressive universities, with turns at Syracuse, Trieste, Penn, and Columbia. Ricardo, I'm glad you could be here. It's a pleasure to be here. So guys, when I close my eyes and I try to conceptualize a black hole, and admittedly, I do this way more often than is probably healthy, it's in the language of gravity. But the way I think about how gravity works, say, like, you know, gravity is holding me to this chair right now. This is a pretty simplistic concept of the way the gravity works on everything in the universe, including like tiny things like the electric particles that are trapped within a black hole. That's quantum gravity. That's the place where Einstein's theories stop doing us much good, right? Well, it, it somewhat depends. So large black holes, black holes that we actually see more or less with, for instance, LIGO, recent experiment that's seen black holes directly. These black holes are big. They're, they're large. Their masses are of order of several solar masses, so many times the mass of the sun. For objects like that, quantum gravity, it's not very important at the boundaries of the black hole where the event horizon is, you know, the place where beyond which you can never come back. It's really for much smaller black holes where those quantum gravity effects are important. Is there a good way to think about what quantum gravity is? Sure. So in all of physics, there's a pattern that you see where you have a theory that works perfectly well in one regime, but once you start pressing the extremes, it doesn't work so well anymore. Either it gives results inconsistent with what we see or the actual predictions just don't make any sense anymore. So for instance, Newtonian gravity works well until gravitational fields get really strong or things move really quickly. Similarly, general relativity works really well until the curvature of space-time gets really big. And that's that point where quantum gravity 
used to take over. This drives physicists. This drives people like you guys because you are looking for things that work in all circumstances, right? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So I love the way you went about this because in order to better understand black holes, you guys sort of set aside the question of gravity, which like in in elementary school or high school, the thing that we're most focused on when we're taught about these black holes, you set it aside and instead you looked at black holes purely in terms of thermodynamic quantities like energy and temperature. I'm wondering what started you guys down the road of thinking about black holes in that way? Well, there is a long history, starting with Stephen Hawking, of studying thermodynamic properties of black holes. So the striking realization by Stephen Hawking that black holes are actually emitting some amount of radiation and that the radiation emitted has the same properties of the radiation. The radiation emitted by an object at constant temperature is what opened Pandora's box of black hole thermodynamics. If an object has a temperature, then according to thermodynamics, it also needs to have an entropy. And this object energy will depend on the temperature and entropy and so on and so forth. And uh, what we like very much about the thermodynamic language as physicists uh, is that it's a universal language that applies uh, not just to black holes, but to any object in equilibrium. So it's a very universal and powerful language. And your paper suggests this relationship between energy and entropy. Actually, let's do a little quick bit of physics 101 here. Let's start with entropy. Can you explain in layperson's terms what we're talking about? Yeah, so the entropy is, if you want, uh, a number that quantify in how many ways, if you want, uh, the microscopic constituents, so the molecules, the atoms, of an object can arrange in such a way that the macroscopic object uh, looks essentially the same. And over a long period of time, there's like just endless numbers, right? Endless ways that things can rearrange themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. And the point is that the more microscopic configurations there are that correspond to the same macroscopic configuration, the more likely the macroscopic configuration is. And that's why, for instance, uh, in a room, uh, the molecules of, of air distribute pretty much uniformly throughout the room, rather than being all bunched up in a corner. That's because uh, there is only a few very special configurations that correspond to have air only bunched up in a corner, whereas there are many, many, many more configurations that correspond to have the air spread out throughout the room. We would say that having a uniform density for the air is a state that has a higher entropy. In your paper, you suggested there's a pretty simple relationship, right? That suggests that black holes, as they shift to store more electricity within smaller masses, experience like a proportional shift in entropy. Can you help me visualize that? Yes, that's right. So the quantity you care about in these examples for black holes is the allowed charge to mass ratio. And what our work has showed is that if you have, say, some corrections to Einstein's theory of gravity, they change the allowed charge to mass ratio in a certain way. And they also change the entropy of that same black hole in a certain way. And the two are directly linked to each other. You know, if you fiddle one, you have to fiddle the other in most cases. And so that's the link between changes in entropy and changes in 
this charge to mass ratio that connects changes in entropy to allowed black hole states and ends up having implications for whether or not black holes can decay. The super cool thing here is this relationship doesn't just work in extremal black holes, right? It applies to any physical system near its extremal limit. Can you give an example of that? Yes. So we've mostly had black holes in mind. It's still somewhat early days for where else this will apply. But another example that we've been looking at recently are, for instance, cold atomic systems, where you have basically a gas of atoms that's uh, trapped within some certain volume. And if you lower the temperature, these are systems that are under exquisite control, which are also systems of current research interest. And the things you could consider doing are tweaking how, for instance, those atoms interact with each other. And the tweaking would be tweaking of certain parameters. And those are the kinds of parameters that appear in our relation. So our relation is discussing when you tweak those parameters, how does that affect the entropy of the system? How does that affect the energy of the system? That's an example of a system where you might find applications of these kinds of relations. Ricardo, is that one of the big pluses for thinking in terms of thermodynamics and, and experimenting and theorizing in terms of thermodynamics that once you have something you know, that applies to a black hole, which as you guys mentioned, we spent a long time trying to even see one and only just got our first image of this past year, but you can actually put your hands on something very close to us and understand that other thing a lot better. Yeah, that's right. So I think throughout the history of physics, a lot of progress have been made also by drawing analogies between uh, different phenomena, phenomena that you could uh, probe directly and uh, phenomena that you could only probe from very far away. So, for instance, the reason why we know what stars are made of is because we can look at the properties of the light that is emitted by stars, and uh, we see that those properties match very well the property of lights that are emitted by simple elements such as hydrogen and helium in experiments that we can perform in the lab. And so this is one of the main ways in which physics makes uh, progress is by extrapolating from experiments that you do in the lab to phenomena that are much more extremes and, and would be perhaps harder to probe. And thermodynamics is certainly, given its universal power, is, is certainly a great language to draw these connections between different phenomena. Is your new formula act as a Rosetta Stone, like a, a translator between that world and our world? That might be a bit ambitious, but certainly I think uh, it can help to think about uh, systems that you can measure in the lab in a different way. So, for instance, this emphasis on the extremal limit is something that is very well known in black hole physics, and usually it's not a concept that plays necessarily a role or an important role in experiments in the lab. And so we think that our result could help injecting some new way of thinking into experiments that you carry out in the lab. Your paper was first released in preprint last year. It was published in March. I've heard a lot of people say that it's potentially revolutionary, but I've got to admit, it didn't even cross my radar until our producer, Naomi, read a piece from the science writer Natalie Wolchover in Quantum Magazine. I can't imagine the work it took for Natalie to produce this really brilliant and fairly accessible piece. Does it feel good at this point to have this work being talked about by the public and, and not just fellow physicists? It certainly feels good. I would definitely not say 
revolutionary. So anyway, it does it does feel good, of course, <laughs> to get attention for the work and that other scientists value the result. I think Natalie really did a terrific job also at uh, placing what we did in a broader context and provide some historical context for the problems that physicists have been thinking about in the context of black holes and how what we did contributes to this effort. And, uh, you know, I certainly agree with uh, Garrett and maybe, you know, I wouldn't define it revolutionary what we did, mostly because usually progress in, in science is more of the evolutionary kind. You know, we build on the progress that people have done before us. And uh, I think our hope is that people will also build uh, further on, on our result. You've kind of challenged them too, right? I mean, you've called this a universal relation. That's a pretty bold proposition in scientific terms. And, you know, it's inviting people to come along and try to find faults, which of course is, you know, that's good science. But that sort of language certainly implies a certain certainty that we don't always see in here in science. What makes you so certain that this relation is universal? The derivation of the relation is based on standard thermodynamics. The crux of the matter is that, so I discussed before about how, you know, one theory essentially eats its predecessor. You've got Newtonian gravity that's subsumed by GR. GR will be, sorry, general relativity. It will be subsumed by something else. And you can think about, you know, one theory being corrected by another theory by some set of parameters, more or less. And our, our work is saying that you can think fruitfully of these parameters in the same footing as you think of other thermodynamic quantities, such as pressure or volume or temperature or what have you. And usually the thermodynamic laws tell you, you know, when you change those thermodynamic quantities, it tells you about the change of the system. We're just saying that if you change these other parameters that describe the underlying theory, they also fruitfully tell you about how properties of that system also change. It's nothing very you know, out there. We're just using the standard laws of thermodynamics in a novel way. And so it's the power of thermodynamics that really underlies why we think this should be universal. To add on what Garrett is saying is uh, that some of these parameters that he mentioned appear when uh, you start transitioning from a regime where general relativity works well to a more microscopic one where uh, quantum gravity effects start playing a role. And that is why ultimately our work also, if you want, has implications for quantum gravity. Where do you take this work from here and where do you think other researchers will build from what you have presented? Well, I think some other researchers have already started testing this, uh, this relation in different uh, theories that include also gravitational interactions and have been applying the, have been testing these results with their equations on black hole solutions that don't necessarily describe maybe the black holes that we see in nature, but that are nevertheless consistent solutions on their equations. And so far, fortunately, <laughs> our result has, uh, has been validated. Is there a part of you that thinks like, oh, gosh, you know, if you're going to subsume my science, please let it be in 20 or 30 or 100 years, not in 20 or 30 days. <laughs> Definitely every day. <laughs> <laughs> but it, that's also interesting. There's you know, certainly you don't want to be make a false claim, but 
for this central relation in our paper, the assumptions that we make are fairly mild. And so, you know, it's not the end of the world if you found some system that violated those assumptions. That's actually an interesting thing because I, you know, I believe those assumptions are, are so mild. Finding counterexamples to very reasonable claims is, is an interesting thing in science. You guys are pretty humble about this. You've referred to this as, you know, like a small step or pretty mild, but others hadn't thought to use the same approach to help explain these questions. So what was it that allowed you to see to see black holes in this light, pardon the pun? Well, I would say others did use similar approaches. So we built on on work of many others before us, just to say some names. Clifford Chung, Grant Remen, John Yulu, George Santos, Harvey Rail, and, and many others before them, of course. But science is a process of just adding little bits. And you know, we followed the story, this very nice story that they and other authors were putting forward, and we're just able to connect some dots and put some pieces together and find connections between previous work. You, as physicists, as theoretical physicists, can explore lots of different questions, questions, you know, about the real world, questions about the imagined world. You sort of, the world is your oyster. What is it about black holes and this property of physics that is appealing to you guys? I think for me, they are certainly some of the most extreme objects. They represent nature at its densest, if you want. And at the same time, they are very, very simple objects. You can describe them by simply three numbers, their mass, their electric charge, and, and their spin. And these, you know, as opposed to any other macroscopic object that surrounds us that typically is uh, defined by many, many more features. What is it made of? Uh, what is its shape, uh, its color? So it's this combination of extreme behavior on the one hand and simplicity on the other that uh, I think um, myself and probably many other physicists find particularly fascinating. Garrett, how about for you? Well, mostly echoing what Ricardo said, but the history of physics, you make progress when you pushed to the extremes. And, you know, these black holes that we're discussing mostly are as charged as they can be, or as quickly spinning as they can be, the limit of some physical process that you can't go beyond. And understanding why you can't go beyond that regime, or, oh, maybe you can go beyond this regime. Actually, there's a subtle correction to that, that barrier. Pushing those boundaries are where most interesting physics is to me. So this brings me back to being a child and, and thinking about this concept of this all-consuming thing somewhere out there in space, just, you know, waiting for me and for my planet and for my solar system. I wonder if you guys recall a moment in your childhoods where you were confronted with the idea of black holes. And, and I wonder whether that was fear or whether it was awe and how that changes as you grow up and come to understand more about these things. Well, for me, growing up uh, as a child in Italy, I, you know, remember being fascinated with science. And uh, I, I was mostly motivated by the fact that I wanted to understand what black holes were. You know, I would read in uh, magazines, for instance, about uh, black holes, the latest discoveries in, in science. And 
I always felt a little that my curiosity wasn't fully satisfied. And so I wanted to really understand what they were talking about. And that's part of what led me to study physics. I wanted to kind of acquire the tools to get to the point where I could understand what they were talking about. Do you find your curiosity more satisfied now or less satisfied as you learn more about the universe? Well, it's always a double-edged sword. I think my original curiosity was was satisfied. I think now I've learned the language that people use to describe black holes. But of course, it's always a moving goalpost, right? As soon as you answer a question, there are more questions that you want to answer and you're never done. And that's what, you know, keeps us researching. And and also that's what keeps us employed. (laughs) Garrett, tell me about your relationship with the subjects you study now. When did it materialize in you? I guess I was always interested in science and... You know, I took physics in high school and I just never left the field really. I just kept diving in deeper. Black holes specifically, I was thinking about your previous question about thinking about black holes as a kid. I remember a great episode of The Simpsons where Homer Simpson gets sucked into a black hole and gets diced to pieces. And I always wondered, is that what happens? <laughs> is that really what, what goes on? So it's just a mix of what you hear growing up about black holes and general relativity being this very complicated and very abstract theory and just what I learned about in physics. I've just been following those roots and those those inspirations, I guess, until now. What happens when you grow up and you find out that that episode of Simpsons was not quite perfect? Although I, I assume you must have assumed that from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I think it was still, it was still fun to see the Simpsons representation of a black hole. It's okay that it's not perfect. <laughs> What are you guys doing now? What's next for you guys? Well, I personally like more checks of this relation in discussing about this paper in particular. I think there's been a lot of interesting follow-up work where this has been tested in various regimes. There are some very interesting edge cases that seem to be popping up that I'd like to explore more. But I also work on other areas besides black holes. I work on early universe cosmology, and you know, quantum mechanical problems in general. So kind of a mix of continuing this and, and branching out still. Ricardo? Yeah, for me also, you know, um, as Garrett, um, I'm interested in a variety of topics, not just uh, black hole physics, but I think uh, in the context of black hole physics, I'm interested in particular trying to understand how we can use these gravitational wave signals uh, to better understand uh, the nature of black holes, uh, and also to test uh, uh, general relativity in these extreme regimes that we haven't been able to test until very recently. One more thing we haven't been able to do until very recently, black holes aren't something that can be seen with human eyes. They weren't seen with the aid of telescopes and supercomputers and imaging techniques until last year. I wonder what that experience was like for you both when you saw that now quite famous image? It was quite remarkable. In fact, I must confess that uh, I have a copy of the the New York Times uh, with uh, a picture of a black hole on the front page. Uh, I have it in my office uh, because, you know, I felt uh, it doesn't often happen that something so 
so beautiful uh, and so profound uh, happens to be on, on the front page of a newspaper. So I, I keep it in my office as, uh, as a reminder. Well, I thought it was a gorgeous, gorgeous image, of course. And I would also say, in addition to that image of the black hole and the accretion disk, the recent work of LIGO, the gravitational wave detector was also, I did not think I would see that in my lifetime, the direct detection of gravitational waves from in spiraling black holes getting to Earth. It's a, it's a very exciting time in gravitational physics. When advances happen like that, because it changes everything so much so quickly, it's got to also be a little bit intimidating because if you think you're not going to see th something in your lifetime and then all of a sudden it's there and you have a lot of lifetime ahead of you, well, it opens up an entirely new chaos. Yeah, it, it's certainly, I wouldn't say it's, in, it's intimidating. I would say it's, uh, it's very exciting. As physicists, we always uh, hope for, uh, to see surprises, you know, in, in, in experiments, in data, or even, you know, from theory, new theoretical ideas that all of a sudden append our understanding of certain areas of physics. So I would say as physicists, we thrive on surprises and uh, it's what they inject new life, if you want, in, in, in the field and keep us all motivated. That's Ricardo Penko and Garrett Goon. Their recent paper in the journal Physical Review Letters describes the relationship between energy and entropy that exists in black holes and, well, maybe everything else. Garrett Goon, thanks for being here. Thank you. And Ricardo Penko, thank you. Thank you very much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.